What happened on the French colony of Saint-Domingue between 1793 and 1804 that led to the creation of Haiti? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. This is Elizabeth, and in this episode we are covering part two of the Haitian Revolution, largely the years 1794 to 1804, though we are going to have to backtrack into 1793 just a little bit. Within these years, we can define three periods. First, until 1796, though there was the abolition of slavery, how that was to play out was not yet known. Then, from 1796 to 1801, Saint-Domingue was led with the permission of the French government by Toussaint Louverture. In 1802, however, Louverture was arrested by the French authorities, and a new leader of the formerly enslaved arose to fight the French forces. Until finally, by 1804, the inhabitants of Saint-Domingue defeated the French forces, and it is from there that the country of Haiti was founded. This episode, therefore, is divided into three parts, and will provide overviews of the confusing years following abolition, the rule of Toussaint Louverture, and the climactic war between the people of Saint-Domingue and the French Empire. First, then, we return to those hazy and heady early days following abolition. When last we met, meaning in my previous episode on the Haitian Revolution, it was August 1793, and the enslaved peoples of Saint-Domingue had been emancipated by the second civil commissioners, French revolutionaries named Santhanax and Pulverel, who had been sent by the National Convention, the French legislature, to calm the insurrection on Saint-Domingue, and, by all means, preserve slavery. Within a short matter of time, though, the Second Civil Commissioners had realized that to keep slavery and to preserve the racial guidelines held against free people of color would, for many reasons that I spelled out in my last episode, mean the loss of the colony. And so, Santhanax and then Pulverel realized that the only way to keep Saint-Domingue French, one of the wealthiest of the French colonies, at least before the slave insurrection destroyed many of the coffee and sugar plantations, was to abolish slavery, and so, with great trepidation, they did. But as I also closed with in part one of this revolution, abolition came with strings attached. Even though slavery was ended, the economy of Saint-Domingue still rested on the cash crops of sugar and coffee of the plantations, and by extension still required, or at least Santhanax, Poverel, and others argued, the labor of the now free black people. So Santhanax and Poverel determined that the free blacks were not just free, but were quote-unquote conductors and cultivators. With these new identifying terms, the commissioners hoped that the free black people would return to the plantations, and, in exchange for their work, they would receive some of the profits from the plantations. They would be co-owners. An interesting side note is that many free black women opposed this arrangement because their shares were only to be two-thirds of what the free black men earned, because, as the commissioners explained, women were just naturally inferior to men. Ouch. Okay, returning, the commissioner's plan, however, and perhaps not unsurprisingly, was a failure, and was made even more difficult when the British, to the acclaim of the white planters, landed in Saint-Domingue and Santanax and Poverel were ordered to return to France. The big question was, would their decrees of abolition stand? And time would tell. Many of the free blacks and the free men of color sided with the British and Spanish because they could not be certain that France would protect their newfound equality. One of the leaders of the free black men who continued to believe that the French government had betrayed the formerly enslaved peoples was a man who, for the first time in August 1793, 
referred to himself in writing by the name Toussaint Louverture, but more on him in a bit. While all of this was happening, a trio was sent to Paris to serve as representatives of Saint-Domingue and explain that whole abolition thing that had happened. This trio, white colonist Louis Dufay, the free black army officer Jean-Baptiste Bellet, and free man of color Jean-Baptiste Mille, arrived in Paris in February 1794, and on February 4th, Dufay, the white colonist, gave a speech at the National Convention in support of abolition. It was some speech, and it did the trick. The representatives of the National Convention agreed, quote, Slavery of the blacks is abolished in all of the colonies. Consequently, it decrees that all men living in the colonies without distinction of color are French citizens and enjoy all the rights guaranteed by the Constitution, end quote. This sweeping proclamation not only abolished slavery throughout the colonies, but also gave political equality to the men of color and the free black men. Belay and Mille, who had accompanied Dufay to the National Convention, were immediately seated and became representatives of the legislative body. But not only that, for our footnoting history fans who listened to Christine and my episode on Notre Dame, remember how the cathedral was turned into the Temple of Reason during the Revolution? Well, they held a large public festival there to celebrate abolition and the equality of all men. That's right, everything ties together. On the island, however, the proclamation seemed to change little for the formerly enslaved persons, at least practically speaking. The newly freed people were still required to live and work on the plantations, a position they continued to find untenable. Like many, the freed peoples wanted their own land. Even under slavery, one of the demands of the enslaved people was to have a plot of land and a day off to cultivate it. Now that they had freedom, there was no desire to continue to toil for another, even if they received some of the proceeds. And in case you thought abolition meant that the insurrection was over and that all formerly enslaved people were united under the French flag, you'd be wrong. There was an international conflict happening, and many of the formerly enslaved were still fighting with the Spanish and British to defeat the French. In the spring of 1794, however, one of the military leaders of the slave insurrection left the Spanish side and joined the French. His name was Toussaint Louverture, and from here until 1801, he guides the revolution. And now would be a good moment to pause and explain more about Toussaint Louverture, who has even been called the quote-unquote Black Napoleon. Born in 1743 on Saint-Domingue, Toussaint Louverture's birth name was Toussaint Breda. The legend surrounding Louverture was that he was the son of an African prince who had been captured and sold into slavery in Africa. We don't know definitively if his father was a prince, but we do know that his father was enslaved in the kingdom of Dahomey in West Africa, and there he was a military leader. By Louverture's thirties, he was free, but still worked for his former owner. He was a coachman, which was considered a high-ranking position, and he had married and had two sons, although even until the revolution his wife and children were recorded as enslaved. For a time, he even owned and farmed a small area of land and owned enslaved peoples himself. In 1791, he was 48 years old. He joined the slave revolt, but made sure that first his wife and sons were safe and also that his former owner and his wife were off the island. Even though Louverture had been free for more than half his life, and he himself had owned and used the labor of enslaved people, he found common cause with the enslaved people who had risen up, not the free men of color. By June 1793, Louverture was the third most important black general on Saint-Domingue. As I said in part one, most of what we know about the Haitian Revolution is from the white European perspective, but in this aspect, Louverture differed. 
Much of what we know about L'Ouverture from the 1790s is from his own letters, and even the memoir or account he wrote himself while imprisoned in France on Napoleon's orders. And what these letters reveal is that not only was Toussaint L'Ouverture a masterful military strategist, but he was a brilliant politician. In many ways, he strove to curate his own image, and it's a masterful display of understanding how to strike the right chord between deference and strength when writing to his superiors. When L'Ouverture, for example, switched over from the Spanish to the French, he immediately adopted the rhetoric of the French Republic. After the black leaders joined the French, L'Ouverture wrote to the white, French general overseeing the efforts in Haiti, and he wrote as one would expect to his superior, making the proper addresses, understanding the change of command, but also made plain his opinions on what tactics should be used and why. With all of this information, however, Toussaint Louverture never explained why he stopped using Breda and took on this new last name. The name Toussaint means all saints, but the surname that he chose for himself, Louverture, means the beginning. All saints, the beginning. Sounds rather ominous, doesn't it? As a friend said, it sounds kind of like a horror movie movie title. Perhaps that was the intent. Well, not the movie title, but the ominous reinvention of self. We can't know, but you can find us at footnotinghistory.com or on social media and let us know what you think. All right then, you now have the background of Toussaint Louverture. Caught up? Good, because it's time to rejoin the revolution in the spring of 1794 as L'Ouverture has been convinced by the governor of Saint-Domingue to abandon the Spanish side and join the French. Over the next 18 months, L'Ouverture continued to gain support and admiration from the freed peoples of Saint-Domingue, aided, largely unknowingly, by a distant French government that was occasionally working hard to retain control of the colony. In 1795, France and Spain signed a peace treaty wherein Spain quit all claims to Saint-Domingue and the Spanish side of the island Santo Domingo. Jean-Francois and Biasu, the original leaders of the slave insurrection who I talked about last episode, well, they had remained loyal to the Spanish government, and they left the island as well. Toussaint Louverture was therefore the last man standing of the insurrection's leaders. A short time later, the National Convention, the French legislature that had abolished slavery, was actually itself disbanded and replaced by the Directory. In an effort to confirm the Saint-Domingue was still very much a French possession, the new government sent new commissioners. As that happened, Governor Laveau, who had helped convince L'Ouverture to abandon the Spanish and join the French, was not so lucky in his relationship with Saint-Domingue's men of color. They imprisoned him in the spring of 1796. L'Ouverture and his men rode in and released him. Laveau proclaimed L'Ouverture lieutenant general of the government of Saint-Domingue, and by the way, try to say that like seven times fast because that one took a lot of recordings. So anyway, L'Ouverture is now the lieutenant general of the government of Saint-Domingue, and by October 1796, he has risen to commander-in-chief of the army on Saint-Domingue. Over the next few years, Laveau and Santonax, Louverture's rivals for political power in the colony, return to France at Louverture's urging. They go, Louverture told them, to denounce the claims that the white planters from Saint-Domingue were making in France. But when they go, they also left Louverture the most powerful man in Saint-Domingue, and then the French government begins to worry. So we've therefore entered our second period of the episode, 1796 to 1801. For the next five years, L'Ouverture, with the grudging permission of the French government, ruled Saint-Domingue. While peace treaties had been signed with the Spanish in the mid-1790s, the British still inhabited portions of the colony. L'Ouverture and the French army slowly drove them out until, in 1798, 
The British surrendered and negotiated an incredibly generous peace agreement with L'Ouverture. But L'Ouverture had reason to feel magnanimous. As he negotiated the treaty, he was also negotiating secret alliances with the British and the American governments. For this episode, we're going to focus on the American alliance. During the slave insurrection of the early 1790s, part one basically of our, our uh, this series, the United States government was nervous. After all, the U.S. was a slave-holding nation. The president, George Washington, owned enslaved people. Until the Civil War, the mention of the Haitian Revolution would strike fear into all American slave owners. During the early 1790s, therefore, the U.S. government sided with whatever forces in Saint-Domingue were opposed to abolition. However, for a brief period in the late 1790s, during the presidency of John Adams, a northerner who did not own enslaved peoples, an alliance arose between the U.S. government and the government of Saint-Domingue led by L'Ouverture. Between 1798 and 1800, the U.S. government was involved in what was known as the Quasi-War with France. This undeclared war was, like much else, a byproduct of the French Revolution, but it left an opening for L'Ouverture to secretly reach out to the U.S. government, and it worked. As Jeremy Popkin explains in his book included in our further reading, Saint-Domingue had never produced enough food for all of its inhabitants. Its goal was cash crops. It had to import food. Good trade relations with the U.S., therefore, were necessary. This alliance was so successful that a liaison for the U.S. government was sent to Haiti, and the U.S. helped and supported L'Ouverture in 1799 through the summer of 1800 as he focused on consolidating his power by defeating André Rigaud, the military leader of the free men of color, who still controlled much of southern Saint-Domingue. During this war with André Rigaud, in a stirring speech, L'Ouverture called back to the portrayal of the quote-unquote Swiss, a story I covered in part one of the Haitian Revolution in which enslaved men who fought for the free men of color were subsequently abandoned by the free men of color and ultimately murdered by white people. However, with the election of 1800 in which Thomas Jefferson, a southerner, a slave owner, and a fan of the French, became president, U.S. foreign policy shifted from one of support to as Laurent Dubois wrote in Avengers of the New World, containment. It was all right in the long term, at least for Jefferson. His support on the French attempts of 1802 to oust L'Ouverture eventually led to Napoleon's need to sell the Louisiana Territory for ready money. But we aren't there yet. In August of 1800, after Rigaud's defeat and before Jefferson's election, L'Ouverture was named the Supreme Commander of Saint-Domingue. He had 20,000 troops under him, and his rule has been described as a military dictatorship. Many of these troops had served since the early 1790s. It's been alleged that half of the adult black men on Saint-Domingue were in military service for the majority of this decade. What Saint-Domingue needed, Louverture believed, was money. Remember, it's the same thing that Sontanax also was striving towards. And remember those quote-unquote strings attached that came with abolition that I explained at the top of this episode? Well, more than half a decade later, L'Ouverture tried to bring back these work codes that tied the formerly enslaved people to the plantations. The formerly enslaved saw this as an attempt to bring back slavery, albeit under a different name. In his memoir, or the account he later wrote, L'Ouverture defended this decision on the fact that Saint-Domingue's economy needed to be repaired. L'Ouverture at this time also extended olive branches to many of the white planters who had fled for the U.S., France, or even joined the British forces, and he invited them back to the island with promises of the government giving up any claims to their land, which the government did too, but the free black men and the free men of color working and tending the land, well, they had other thoughts. 
Again, though, at this stage, events in France impact Saint-Domingue. In 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte overthrew the French government and created a new constitution, this one devoid of any mention of the basic rights included in the other constitutions written during the course of the French Revolution. Change was coming, but first France needed to continue its fight with Britain. Napoleon didn't yet have the time nor manpower to make sure that the colony of Saint-Domingue was fully under his control. And, in the meantime, Louverture decided that the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo needed to be taken over. Wait, you say didn't the Spanish cede that colony in 1795? I'm pretty sure you said that a few moments ago. Why, yes, yes I did, and actually, yes, they did. But for whatever reason, they didn't actually leave, and the French didn't take control, instead the Spanish authorities remained in charge. And this, in many ways, exemplifies for me the story of the Haitian Revolution. You see, the revolution is incredibly important. It was, after all, the first successful slave rebellion and resulted in the first abolition of slavery in the Atlantic world. And yet, when it was happening, it was always second place to other international events. The French Revolution, the wars between France and the rest of the European powers, the Quasi-War. And perhaps then that's why it succeeded. The French government assumed that they would be able to keep the colony under control and return to it when they had the chance. But, by the time Napoleon decided it was time to show Saint-Domingue who was in control, the people of Saint-Domingue had a decade to become some of the finest soldiers in the world, and they'd also had a decade of freedom. Slavery would not be reinstated, and they would not be re-enslaved. And so, in January 1801, Louverture decided to clean up loose ends and actually take control of Santo Domingo, which they did. And with that, 25,000 more enslaved peoples in the Spanish territory were technically freed, it's hard to know if this news was passed on to all of them, though. What Louverture hadn't done, however, was ask Napoleon for permission to take Santo Domingo. Louverture also then had a constitution for Saint Domingue written up, again without Napoleon's permission. Napoleon was furious, and as the war between Britain and France took a break, he began to focus on Saint Domingue. But Louverture himself actually now had more pressing matters closer to home. In October 1801, free black people still required to work on the plantations rose up in rebellion. Hundreds of white people were slain. Louverture sent one of his most brutal commanders, a man named Jean-Jacques Dessalines, to suppress the rebellion. For Louverture, the rebellion was not just about disgruntled free men, but also betrayal. The rebellion was allowed to happen, Louverture believed, because another commander, Louverture's adopted nephew, Moise, supported it. Unlike Louverture, who had invited white planters to return to Saint-Domingue, Moise and others wanted all whites off the island. Louverture had Moise arrested and, in November 1801, executed. While Louverture had once seemed all-powerful in Saint-Domingue, his support was waning just when he needed it most. We enter, then, the last phase of the Revolution, 1802-1806. Napoleon Bonaparte did not believe the white and black people were equal. He did not oppose enslaving those of African descent, and he did not believe that just because slavery had been abolished in French colonies, that it needed to stay abolished. In early 1802, he sent Charles Leclerc, a general and his brother-in-law, to sort out matters on Saint-Domingue. Leclerc's directions were threefold. 1. Convince everyone on Saint-Domingue, especially Louverture, that he was their friend as he took back power for France. Once that it was accomplished, he was to 2 remove Louverture from power and take over the army. Finally, three, he was to remove all black generals from power and have them shot as rebels, the black population was to be disarmed, 
Any black man who held a higher rank than captain in the army was to be deported, and white women who had sexual relationships with black men were to be sent to France. Well, half of Napoleon's plan worked. Leclerc arrived in February 1802 to a city that had been burned to the ground in anticipation for his invasion. But initially, he and his 20,000 troops were undeterred. Within a short amount of time, though, they realized that it was not going to be easy to conquer and subdue the people of Saint-Domingue. Within a few months, news spread that Napoleon had broken his word to the people of other French island colonies and that slavery had been reinstated. The people of Saint-Domingue knew, therefore, that they were fighting for their freedom. And even with the 80,000 troops that Napoleon would send over the next 18 months, it was not enough for Leclerc or the man who took over after him. Leclerc did succeed in one instance, though. That summer, Toussaint Louverture was arrested by Leclerc and sent to France where he died in jail. I have included Toussaint's memoir, which was written while he was jailed, on our further reading at www.footnotinghistory.com, and I urge you to check it out along with the other sources and links. While Napoleon thought victory was assured with Louverture gone, it turned out the revolution was more than its leader. A leader that, as the revolutions against Louverture indicated, was actually losing popularity with many of the black community. Louverture had been willing to work with the white community, an important distinction with those who would replace him. In Louverture's place rose up his second-in-command, the man who Louverture had sent to put down that earlier revolution led by Moise, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. As noted above, though, Dessalines was known for his brutality, and he was, unlike Louverture, also known for his belief that all white French people needed to remove from Saint-Domingue by any means necessary. The French leadership also changed hands at this point. A few months after Louverture's arrest, Leclerc, Napoleon's brother-in-law, died of yellow fever in Saint-Domingue. He handpicked his successor, Rochambeau, because he was, quote, a person of integrity, a good military man, and he hates the blacks, end quote. For all that, though, in 1803, Dessalines defeated the French expeditionary force in various battles. In November 1803, the French surrendered to Dessalines, and on January 1st, 1804, the nation of Haiti, which was taken from a Taino word for the island, was established with Dessalines and its leader. But the war was not over. That spring, Dessalines ordered the murders of all remaining white people on Haiti except for a few non-French groups. According to reports, communities were actually largely unwilling to carry out the murders until Dessalines arrived to personally order and oversee them. And during this period, then, approximately 3,000 to 5,000 people were killed. Dessalines stated that no formerly enslaved person in Haiti could be insured of their freedom as long as a French person remained on the island. Over the next year, the Haitian government created a constitution that reinforced Dessalines' beliefs, and if you're interested in learning more about that aftermath, including the 1806 assassination of Dessalines by his own men, start with our further reading at www.footnotinghistory.com. For now, though, I'll leave you with the new country of Haiti that in just over a decade went from a French colony with its wealth based on the labor of enslaved Africans to a new country in which the government was controlled by free black men. Are you interested in owning some Footnoting History merch, such as our History It's Complicated shirt that you can actually also get on other products? You're in luck. As of right now, there are a bunch of sales happening, and you can find out more through our shop link at footnotinghistory.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote, or on Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. 